One Voice Multiplied is Impactually's tagline. We shine a light on everyday people who are on a mission for positive change, not necessarily for themselves, but for the greater good of their communities and oftentimes beyond. It's about the power of the human voice. We're revolutionizing the way the world does positive storytelling with a focus on communities like yours. We're glad you're here. This episode of Impactually is brought to you by Arch. Arch believes in caring for our planet and shares the natural, the new, and the undeniably unique for living better. Arch is also a proud member of Impactually's Encourage Impact Project, innovating how we talk about social responsibility. Together, taking on sustainability and working to leave this world a better place. Archglow.com Over two and a half thousand years ago, the Greek philosopher Aristotle observed and wrote about the connections between bees and the natural world. A beekeeper himself, he noted that these little pollinators were the divine connection between plants and animals. Today, entomologists recognize that bees have played a critical role in the evolution of Earth for over 160 million years. Since then, bees have committed to building a more colorful, bountiful, and tasty world, for without them we wouldn't have fruits, nuts, berries, vegetables, coffee, chocolate, cotton, and even alfalfa and clover, which would make meat and dairy scarce. There are 50,000 bee species around the world, with 20,000 in North America alone, including, but not limited to, the honeybee, the carpenter bee, the bumblebee, the red mason bee, and the leafcutter bee. It's interesting to note that there are only four species that make honey, none of which are native to North America, and not all bees are social or live in above-ground colonies. It's also important to know that wasps and hornets are not bees, but they too underpin a healthy ecosystem. According to the Bee Conservancy, an organization dedicated to protecting all bees and advocating for environmental and food justice, working bees are integral to food production and they pollinate 70 of the 100 food crop species that ultimately feeds 90% of the world. So, In other words, one-third of everything we eat is pollinated by bees. Impressive, huh? And what if I told you that bees are responsible for $265 billion in crops to global economies? It's an understatement to say that bees and other pollinators, like birds, bats, butterflies, and other insects— and their invaluable pollinating services sustain our modern food system standard of living. But since 1947, the United States agricultural statistics have shown a steady 60% decline in active honeybee hives, from 6 million to 2.4 million by 2008. This raises more than a few eyebrows. From global climate chaos resulting in droughts and floods to large-scale industrial monoculture farming practices that result in a loss of plant and biodiversity, malnutrition, and parasites, the loss of these critical bee populations is creating concern about the future of food security and other agricultural efforts. 
beekeepers are constant stewards of all bee species, and they know that bees cannot keep pace with these obstacles. Today, keepers or apiarists have actively turned to advocacy, environmental education, strategic partnerships, and hive design to find solutions and better serve the health of these often marginalized yet truly divine pollinators. For one apiarist, educating people of all ages about the plight of the bees and preaching for better beekeeping practices is his passion. From his work with local nuns looking for answers about their barren apple trees, to his bee consulting with golf courses in natural habitat management, to classrooms, and his own design workshop, he's a true believer in the good story, and he's helping Wisconsin protect their beloved pollinators. It's called Behold, and our story starts here. From the studios of Hum Productions, I'm Brooke Bechtold, and this is Impactually. If someone told you that they keep bees, most likely you'd assume that they live on a large tract of land or a farm, much of it blanketed in a colorful display of native plants and dedicated to those iconic stacked wooden boxes that hum. Well, Charlie Keenan is an urban beekeeper in and around Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's the executive director of Beevangelists, a group that preaches the gospel of bees. He works with public and private institutions to not only install and care for urban apiaries, but also provides tips about purposeful gardening and how we can be better stewards of the environment, but most important, appreciating bees. He's helping folks just like you and me. We met Charlie through his work as the beekeeper for a sustainability-conscious senior living community on the east side of Milwaukee. Nestled in a bluff full of wildflowers and overlooking the shores of Lake Michigan, the bees live in a special hive Charlie designed, built, and cares for. Along with all the other critters who call this urban forage home, they thrive and the honey is delicious. Charlie's interest in beekeeping came about 20 years ago with a heartwarming story. I blame my sister for this all. I was run I was happily running an apple dealership and getting people to think different about desktop computers when she told me about this urban farm in Milwaukee and this uh, guy, Will Allen, who ran this place called Growing Power. And she said, you should check it out. It's pretty interesting. And one day when I didn't have something to do, Um, and I happened to be near 55th and Silver Spring, I stopped in at this place and, like many people, fell in love with the efforts of this Black farmer who had the last urban farm in Milwaukee teaching um, at-risk people about where their food comes from. And so I just dove in headfirst and said, let me help you you know, spread this buzz or get this thing going. And part of it was these bees in the back of the property. And I came over there and was going to film a whole bunch of stuff and get it all put online for him. And so I was like, well, let's do a film shoot and you can go back there and tell me about the bees. And he's like, I don't go anywhere near the bees. And truthfully, I never cared about bees or anything myself. Don't care about bugs. I was a computer guy. 
Knowing little to nothing about insects, Charlie was captivated by these hives. He and his friend Mike Thompson offered to make a promotional video about will and growing power. But Charlie's real aha moment came when he saw a bee through the high-powered lens of their camera. And, and so and so here I am, like like 50 yards away from the bees, but I'm right there with them. And I'm like, okay, Mr. Thompson, show me what you got. And he's like, get over here. And and it was it was through his ability to demystify what I perceived as a scary thing and what Will Allen perceived as a scary thing, scary but essential thing, um, that got me in. And when I, you know, beholded the the being inside of the box, um, it wasn't a bunch of stinging objects. It was this fascinating colony interacting and all these bees um, making a, a, an entity, a being inside of that hive. And I was like, man, I want to do something like this. And so I ended up working with a, another person there and we became the, the beekeepers and the instructors at that place. And so um, that's 20 years ago. And I pretty much like got rid of my computer business and went head over heels into, into bees and beekeeping. And then, and then one other little tidbit to the story, um, one of the students that came to one of my classes or three of them were these really old little nuns from Mount Calvary, Wisconsin, which is this little dot of, of a place outside of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. And here these nuns came to learn about beekeeping because they said our garden's not doing well. And I was like, oh man, I'm looking at these nuns and, and they can't be more than 90 pounds and 90 years old. And I'm like, you can't lift an 80 pound box of honey filled bees. And they looked at me really, really, really sad. Like, no, we, we, need, we need pollinators, you know? Their gardens were suffering. For decades, the nuns planted and cared for their fruit and vegetable filled fields. But over the years, they noticed a change they said that the orchard they had on their property wasn't producing anymore and they were going to cut down the trees. And so I put the bees in and within two years time, we were bracing the tree limbs because the weight of the fruit was busting branches off. So, so it came full circle. Oh, I find it so fascinating. Like when plants aren't doing well, people are always like, so something's wrong with the soil. But those nuns were like, no, 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 we need bees. How did they know that? Oh, man, nuns are super smart. They're some of my favorite people to work with. And the big love they spread as being Sisters of St. Francis is to promote the abundance of nature and natural surroundings. So they are basically bees. And, and, and I was just like, wow, yeah, I'm totally hooked with you guys. So I still have bees there today and we still go out there and work and, and it helps their garden because they have a couple of big gardens that feed the nuns, um, but it helps them to produce tons of produce, um, uh, strawberries, the size of your fist, potatoes beyond potatoes, tomatoes beyond tomatoes. So it, yeah, it's been, it's been, you know, a perfect place to, to give anecdotal proof that pollinators are important and benefit um, everything around them. And over the last 20 years, Charlie's passions for bees and Earth's sustainability has grown. 
Throughout that time, he's realized that people of all ages are naturally fascinated by bees. But working in marginalized communities and with less able-bodied and older generations, Charlie has found his place in this world. I've been circling around this um, theologic uh, bend or biologic um, uh, bipartisan uh, bend of um, of trying to promote the plight of pollinators and to try and raise awareness of to people about the importance of pollinators. And it started with honeybees. But yeah, for me, it, it was always, it was never about the honey and it was really never about the money because um, all I did was pour money into it. Uh, eventually it's it's turned around and it's become, you know, something I can level with. But um, but but that's not the point. And, and when I look at the being of bees, that's not their point. You know, a, a, a honeybee spends its entire life making a twelfth of a teaspoon of honey, a drop of honey, and yet it does. It says, you know, we need to make it through winter and we need honey to stay warm. So I'm going to do a, my part to, to bring honey to our family. And it's a great way of kind of looking at life is saying, you know, your vote matters. Your choice in a supermarket matters. Your knowledge of your surroundings really matters. And even if it's just one vote and one purchase and one plant you plant, it's, it's how the hive comes together. It's how everything works. Honeybees live in colonies of a single queen, hundreds of male drones, and 20 to 50,000 female worker bees. Where you'd expect chaos, there's a purposeful order to their activity. The male drones have one role, and that is to mate with the unfertilized queen. They don't have stingers and are unable to feed without the assistance of the female workers. These workers, on the other hand, do all the heavy lifting. First, they're nursemaids to the babies. As their nursing glands begin to atrophy... Their wings become stronger, and their jobs shift to collecting pollen and nectar as food for the entire colony, pollinating plants as they go. Nectar stored within their stomachs is passed from one worker to the next until the water within it diminishes. At this point, the nectar becomes honey, which workers store in the cells of the honeycomb. Like all living things, honeybees vary in their traits across the species. Genetic differences across these breeds can lead to differences in attributes like color, temperament, reproduction rates, productivity, and disease resistance. The environment also has a huge impact on differences among bee colonies due to stimuli and response. A stock of bees is akin to a race, and they have names like Italian, Russian, Caucasian, and Buckfast. The characteristics that differentiate each race are subtle, but can make a difference in the success or failure of a hive. Both the professional and hobby apiarists need to choose their bee stock carefully, based on purpose and conditions. Charlie and his team lead programs about the needs of the different apiary species and what makes them unique. They secure permits and install special nests that he designs and builds at places like churches, community centers, retirement homes, and schools with the hopes of drawing an interested and inquisitive crowd. 
So I think one question that you asked a while ago before I rambled off into some direction was something about, um, are they different from place to place? And yes, you know, all these different bees are specialists and they're specialists to plants that developed in certain regions. And so in some ways, that's why it's important for us to think about what we plant when we're planting our garden. Just don't go, oh my God, that's a gorgeous plant that I saw when I was on this trip to Texas. I'm going to put it in Wisconsin and, and make sure it works. Well, like, wait a second, the, the bee that grew up making that thing that had a longer tongue because that flower stuck out further isn't here. And so that plant's not going to thrive in this area. But the bees that are here that are good for purple loosestrife or sedum or or uh, echinacea or whatever um, now don't have something they can access and will be less for it. So that's why we talk about wanting to plant indigenous flowers to a region to be able to keep or support those um, bees that have developed uh, a longer tongue or proboscis or a more hairy body to be able to pick up the pollen on the body as they're going into the plant or a proclivity towards nighttime or late time um, pollination because that's when the preferred flower is available. And the new thing that we're starting now is to um, produce solitary bee houses. Um, which are like the size of a birdhouse, but they're for individual bees that are as threatened and probably more important in some ways um, than honeybees. But in, in our finding out about the collapse of the bee population, we've now researched enough to notice that these other bees that don't come together in a box and are not easy to see are also in decline and so we need to be promoting awareness and health of those. We'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Impactually. The team at Hum Productions works hard to leverage our episodes with the incredible and inspiring impact of our guests. If you want to support the show and be more in the know of what's coming up with Impactually, you're invited to support us on Patreon. Whether it's branded swag, earning producer-level credits, gaining access to scripts, or learning what's happening behind the scenes, you can get those and more if you go to patreon.com forward slash impactually. That's patreon.com forward slash impactually. I'm Rob White, partner along with my wife Laura at our company called Arch. We're proud sponsors of this episode of Impactually and are excited about sharing the story of bee conservation with you. From the belief in the healing power of plants in our botanical skincare line to our passion for vintage, Arch is a lifestyle brand committed to connecting with nature and helping protect the earth. We aim to eliminate waste by repurposing and respecting heirlooms. We cultivate the power of plants because they sustain and enrich life. When we talk about the socially and environmentally responsible choices we make, it can certainly start with being global caretakers of bee populations. We believe a reciprocal relationship with nature is not only essential to our health, but how we heal. We harness pure plant positivity in every one of our small batch products and bring distinctive vintage to the marketplace. 
and we encourage you to join us in our commitment to conservation of bees, the environments in which they live, and our planet. Now, this episode definitely hits home for us as we have our own brand of arch honey that comes from the beautiful Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, where generations of flowers and bees have always worked together in harmony. Keeping it that way for bees everywhere is critical to the health of the planet. So, through advocacy, education, products, and practice, we can all raise awareness to the plight of the pollinators. Arch looks forward to connecting with Charlie Keenan and finding ways to work together. This is a movement and we are proud to roll up our sleeves to do better by community. There'll be more on that to come. To discover our healing and hydrating botanical skincare products, rare vintage finds, and of course our exquisite honey, go to archglow.com. At checkout, use the special code IMPACTUALLY and a discount of 5% will be automatically applied. You can also follow us on Instagram at Arch by Laura White. Now, back to the show. Where honeybees make up a small fraction of the global bee populations, there are actually over 20,000 different species of solitary bees, and yet they're often overlooked. These pollinators, as their description suggests, live alone. They don't serve a queen, and they don't make honey. Their bee houses, sometimes called bee hotels, look like hollow birdhouses filled with sticks, straw, bamboo, reeds, or cardboard tubes. They attract native solitary bee species like mason bees, leafcutter, and minor bees. And according to the Old Farmer's Almanac, these docile superpollinators are up to three times more effective in pollinating plants as honeybees. And so what does that mean for the backyard gardener? Well, better flowers, thriving plants, and healthier vegetables. So you got those solitary bees, and it's just, it's a mom, and she, she goes out. And that's what's interesting is, is that because, you know, there's so much better pollinators than honeybees, because a honeybee is trying to feed a family. Each bee might del- look at as many as 1,500 flowers per flight before it fills up its little honey tank or nectar tank has to go back and unload and then turn around and go back. And they only work in the daytime. Those solitary bees don't have to go back and forth. They just are running around and picking and choosing what they want to eat and filling themselves up and then making their own bodies strong enough that they can mother offspring. So they become their own little queens for their own little family. Right. Right. Here, We can take a box that has, you know, 18 holes and 18 moms that go in and and lay six babies and close it off and then die. And those six babies spend the rest of the summer getting ready to make it for next year. So so it's a very small amount of work that's going on. And and the students or the, the stewards only have to tamper with or go into the hives in spring and in fall to make it work. So it's a much um, better way to reach people who want to help with the plight of the pollinators, but don't have the time commitment, the strength, or have 
fears of, of what it's like when you have 50,000 bees running around in your backyard. So this would be a great answer for urban gardeners who have a, a small plot of land but are... Totally. Since 2008, an urban renaissance in apiculture has been on the rise in cities like Milwaukee, Boston, San Francisco, Paris, London, Chicago, Detroit, New York, and Toronto, with their suburban counterparts catching on quickly. With the health of urban bees on the rise, in addition to the sustainable socioeconomic opportunities and the benefit to the species as a whole, it's no wonder why municipalities are beginning to actively cultivate beekeepers and their hives. This is good news for bees and good news for cities. In the city, we found just in the last 20 years when beekeeping started moving into the city, we found that the hives that we can do can produce up to 200 pounds of honey, which totally threw off all the commercial beekeepers and everybody. They're all naysayers like, no way. City doesn't have that many flowers. And when you think about it, the city does have plenty more flowers and abundance and diversity than, than the farm fields do anymore because we're now monoculture. Monoculture agriculture is farming that's based on growing only one type of crop at one time and on one specific field. Think cotton, soybeans, corn, wheat, and almonds. And we have bought all of our farms so that we don't have the little 40-acre farms anymore. We got gigantic farms that are just producing corn, and they don't even eat the corn. So it's like, you know, yeah, no wonder you can hardly produce any honey out in the field. And no wonder they're getting sick because bees, like us, want a diverse diet. You know, if all you ate was potatoes for 30 years of your life, you'd be sick and sick of potatoes. Urban landscapes are not crop-based, and while we certainly use plenty of chemicals to control insect pests and invasive plants or weeds, we aren't anywhere close to the same scale as commercial uses. By the way, did you know that dandelions are a crucial food source for emerging honeybees in spring? So don't touch! In the wild, honeybees will build their nests anywhere protected from predators. Apiarists have designed man-made hives from as far back as ancient Egypt, when hives were made from straw and clay. Fun fact, if you happen to find a honeypot in a tomb, stick your finger in it. Honey lasts longer than a mummy. In Milwaukee, beekeeping was legalized in 2011, thanks in large part to some strategic apiary partnerships and Charlie's work to engage with people around the topic. Urban communities are proving to be great places to keep honey and solitary bees because of the accessibility to a biodiverse diet of plants in city habitats, not to mention the human medicinal benefit of honey made by the same pollens that are known to trigger seasonal allergies. So, so yeah, so honey and, and the benefits of honey and, and raw honey versus what I call funny honey, or a lot of people call funny honey, um, uh, and you can really tell it when you have a taste test and you have like real honey from a real beekeeper and you put it up against something you picked up at the store and you're like, wow, that, you know, and you can't tell if if all you've been eating is the one kind because, you know, that's, it's sweet and it's nice. It's sticky and it's 
amber colored and you're like, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah, it's like honey, tastes like honey, must be honey. And then you have real honey and you're like, whoa, what's that other stuff? Right. I think people need to think about the same way that they treat the idea of going to a farmer's market and they feel that, you know, if they know their farmer and their practice, they know their food is better than just going to the store because you just can't trust even organic labels anymore. Right. So I think you take it one more step, know your farmer, know your food, know your beekeeper, know your honey. Um, and so if you go to the local market and you got the local beekeeper there and, and you talk to him, you know, where are your hives and where do you keep them? That's the better honey for you because in addition to just being raw, you think about what is honey. So honey is, is medicine to the bees also. It's, you know, antimicrobial and it's hydroscopic, meaning it, it sucks up moisture, absorbs moisture. I always talk to people when I'm selling honey, you know, do you have a kid that's got a problem with, you know, sneezing and wheezing, then get the dark honey from fall because that's when that's happening or get the spring honey or get the summer honey. So we sell what we call seasonal regional honey because we're in kind of a predominantly urban environment so we don't have a large monoculture. We can't say this is orange blossom or this is almond blossom or something. We just go, this is Milwaukee summertime. This is Milwaukee fall. This is Milwaukee spring. This is Brookfield spring, Brookfield fall. And, and in that way, you can sort of say, all right, I, I have you know, issues in the fall. I live in this area. I'm going to try that honey. And people find greater success in alleviating some of what ails them. Humans have been using honey as medicine for a very, very long time. And even today, honey is used in burn centers for taking care of third degree bad burns on people because of its hydroscopic properties. So when you apply this, it's antibacterial, so it won't cause an infection. And if you have an infection, it sucks the moisture out of it, which kills the infection. So you can get a better heal um, and a faster heal using honey. And then if you look at honey, honey is um, a product from a plant, right? And so plants grow at certain seasons and in certain regions different than someplace else. And so if you look around the world at like, what's one of the best healing plants around, the tea tree or tea tree oil is really special oil in when you look at, at essential oils and what they're good for. So the flower of the tea tree probably produces the best nectar of all nectars. And if you've ever heard of Manuka honey, Manuka honey is tea tree honey in New Zealand, pretty much only grown in New Zealand. And, and it's rap, rabidly plagiarized. Um, and they do as best they can to try and to, to, to qualify and quantify that this is actual factual Manuka honey that you're buying. And the stuff sells for the price of gold. Yeah. Um, but, but that is like the best for curing. But sometimes it's like much more medicine than what we need. We could find health benefits by just grabbing honey from the corner um, uh, beekeeper because it's the, it's the pollen and the nectar from around us. And honey is just one piece of the puzzle. So I know that we're going to you know, touch on what else is there. 
in the hive beyond honey. And, and that's what really has me fascinated. Cause I'm really, I mean, the honey's cool, but everybody does the honey. Um, what I think is really interesting are all the other things that come from the hive. So there's more to a hive than just honey. There's the pollen. And then there's also the bees medicine, which is this stuff called propolis and propolis is super cool. And in other countries, in global South countries, in non-Westernized countries around the world, they've been using these products from the beehive for, for centuries and, and as health benefits or as things to protect or wellness um, enhancers. Um, and it's all about um, what do the bees use it for? It's sort of like the protection of the hive. And, and in fact, as we learn more, it's antibacterial, antimicrobial, antifungal, and it is the medicine that keeps the hive safe um, from problems around it. Oh, my God. Yeah, there definitely is. I didn't know anything about propolis, but that's really cool. And when I went to Slovenia a couple of years ago where I learned about all sorts of things that are beekeeping that are I mean, every day, I was just like, hmm, why don't we do that? Hmm, how come I never learned that? Hmm, why don't I know that? Um, everything they do is very different from what we do in the West or in the United States. Um, but one of the things they do is AP therapy of um, bee therapy. And their bee therapy includes the consumption of honey and the consumption of pollen and that type of stuff, but also goes so far as to also deal with this propolis as tinctures and as salves and balms. But one of the things that they do that I really want to bring back in some way, I don't know how, um, is bee air. So what they do is they, they hook a hose with a screen so you can't get a bee to a mask that fits on your face and people come far and wide to breathe the air of a hive for an hour to alleviate chest ailments, emphysema, uh, asthma, things like this, because the air inside of the hive is propolized, is sterilized. We don't know about that because we can't find a way to put a patent on it, right? The other thing that they do, which is just now starting to come around to America, which is very telling, is bee sting therapy bee venom therapy. Yeah, I've heard of this. Either either arthritis or systemic neurological disorders can be treated in one way or another through the use of the very powerful neurotoxin that the bees give in their sting. And so bee sting therapy is something that they do there. There's many a good lesson to learn inside the hive. <laughs> Few would argue that honey is more than just a natural sweetener. Proof of its restorative properties are powerful, and it's no wonder that humans have benefited from honey for thousands of years. Ancient Egyptians offered honey as a gift to the gods, while the Greeks, Romans, and Chinese have long used it for treating wounds, fevers, and stomach ailments. Today, bees are a keystone species. They lie at the heart of our survival, and their hard work is not only essential to healthy ecosystems, but to sustaining animal and human life, too. Education and action will be the key to their survival. It will take a village. At the beginning of our interview, I asked Charlie why he chose to do what he's doing. He didn't answer until the very end. 
you know, so I think that's, you know, if, it, if you go back to like question two, you know, why do you do what you do? It's because 20 years ago when I'd raise my hand, you know, say, raise your hand. If you knew anything about bees, you'd get one or two people. If you knew about colony collapse, you'd get one or two people. If you knew about propolis and now you raise your hands in those classes and everybody knows. So it's working. And the number of honeybee keepers that there are in the world, many, many, many more. The number of ordinances that we've helped to change, you know, throughout the Midwest by, by trying to get sensible, uh, mutually beneficial uh, hive counts and offsets off of neighbor's properties and neighborhood sign-offs and stuff to help bring the community together around the benefits of the bees is working. Impactually is created and produced in cooperation with Hum Productions, a nonprofit media collaborative. Our web address is hum, that's H U M M, productions.org. Financial support for the show is provided by Arch. Arch believes in caring for our planet and shares the natural, the new, and the undeniably unique for better living. Check out their collection at archglow.com and follow on Instagram at Arch by Laura White. At checkout, use the special code IMPACTUALLY, and a discount of 5% will be automatically applied to your order. Additional financial support is provided by folks like you, who support us on Patreon and GoFundMe. There's a link on our website, and you can find us at patreon.com forward slash impactually and gofundme.com forward slash homeproductions. We'd like to extend our sincerest thanks to our guest, Charlie Keenan. We have links to be evangelists, some photos of Charlie at work, and other articles about their outreach in our show notes that are well worth a read. Special thanks to Seth Bernard for providing his beautiful song, Bending with the Wind, for this episode. We have a link to his website in our show notes, and his music is available on all major streaming platforms. This episode of Impactually is produced in special partnership with Mountain Craft Productions as a docupod, blending short, immersive documentary filmmaking with the informative entertainment of a full-length podcast. To watch the documentary, please visit humproductions.org. And our team, Christine Murdoch, Senior Producer and Editor, James Nash, Director of Operations, Director of Production, Jack Bechtold, Jacob Motz, head writer. Sound engineering by Andy Shoemaker. Music curation by L. Lively of Crooked Tree Creative. Richard Cassis of Spark Inc. for digital artwork. Andrew Sachs for our original music. Our filmmakers are Mountain Craft Productions. And I'm Brooke Bechtold, executive producer and host. Subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts leave us a review. We really appreciate it as it helps others find us too. We'd love to hear from you, so send us an email or find us on social media. Pitch us ideas about people who you think would be great to have on our show. Maybe it's even you. We'll be back soon with another extraordinary episode. Everyone has a story. Share. Mm -hmm.